I'm now in my 30th year working to restore nature in forests and on farms, mostly across the north of England. 30 years ago I left the city and my old job behind. I hung up my suit and tie and went off to plant trees. It's a decision I've never regretted. I'm Pete Leeson. Welcome to Tree Amble Podcast. This is a podcast about people and farming and trees and nature and how we could all do much better. Hi, and welcome back to Treeamble, the podcast about land and land managers. So this is episode six, and today we're going to meet Jack Spees. Jack and I met on a really rubbish training course about 15 years ago. He and I hit it off immediately, and very soon we were planning our first projects where we could blend our own skills to improve watery habitats. He is a joy to spend time with, and one of those people who can really tell you what's going on in a landscape. We first met in the pub for this interview, but soon headed off to look at one of his favourite small Lancashire streams. I hope you enjoy this episode. Morning, Jack. Morning, Pete. Um, <clears throat> just come in to the pub because it's pouring over right outside. I was hoping to meet you by a river. Maybe we'll get to see one later on. Yep. Maybe not. But uh, I've come to see Jack Spees, who mm. is an old friend of ours. And is the what are you the chief, chief executive? Yep, of Ribble Rivers Trust. Don't ask me to say that after a couple of years. <laughs> RRT. RRT. And I've known you worked with you what fifteen years or yep. something? Yeah, fifteen. Two thousand and eight. And we met on a on a riverbank during the worst course <laughs> I've ever been on. <laughs> It was uh, it was a particularly interesting day that uh, involved presentations and training on wading birds, woodland creation, river restoration, but trying to do that through, I think it was higher level stewardship at the yeah. time, which was just kind of impossible for anything except wading birds. It worked for wading birds, but not anything else. But the course was, yeah, it was, it was bad. <laughs> <laughs> I think we all left early. Cause it was just, but meeting you was great, because yep. actually... You know when you meet a character you kind of feel like you can engage with and are on the same wavelength? Yes. And I've talked about this with my partner Angela about, about wanting to work with people who, who you spark off and you, and you kind of feel that you've got a way in with. And it just struck me that actually on that riverbank there was, there was somebody I could work with. Yeah. So yeah. I think we rang each other a week later and said, right, what can we do? Yeah, and I think it might even have been because I think that was about this time of year 15 years ago I think it was early early spring and I'm pretty sure we did our first woodland pretty much if not that winter certainly the winter afterwards and and I think yeah the, as you say that kind of hang on a minute this guy's the same as me it's outcomes it's not outputs yeah. and let's focus on getting to those outcomes because where there's a will there's a way and and let's not get tied down or, or tied up in knots around, oh, well, this is the process and this is the protocol and, oh, isn't that going to be difficult? It's like, no, no, that's what we want to achieve. We've got a landowner who wants the same. How do we get there? How do we get there? Yeah. And, it, and it's, you know, it's not a question of finding the problems, it's seeing the opportunities and finding the answers. Um, 
But that sounds all quite serious. So before we get to the serious <laughs> bit, <clears throat> you're a fisherman. You love yes. your fish, don't you? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I must admit, and it, maybe this is a bit heavy as well. I think having done this job now for 15 years, it's very. It can be very hard to go fishing because I now take work with me on my hobby. You know, it's uh, you get down the riverbank and oh, there's invasives here. We're going to have to tackle that. And all this isn't it a bit muddy today. But um, no, in a in, in a sort of uh, in a normal day of going out, out on the riverbank, yeah, fishing is uh, something I really enjoy. It's it's actually if you can cut through that work stuff, it's actually giving that sort of singular focus to an activity where you can just let everything else go. Mm. But then you sit on the riverbank, like to fish with somebody. Uh, not all fishermen are like that. Some are, are very much loners, but I actually quite like sitting down for a coffee or a sandwich or whatever, just a, a natter and look at the river going by. Well, I know that if I want a meeting with you, that the only time we can actually get to talk sensibly is by going fishing. This is true. This and is true. so we have actually now got an annual fishing date in the diary, so we can actually talk to each other. This is this is absolutely true. Well, it's that dangerous thing. We, we've been trying something similar at the office, which is just going for a walk. Yeah. You know, we'll do a walking meeting, and it was the chief executive of Heinben Borough Council who introduced me to the concept. And the reason being is you haven't got your laptop pinging notifications about emails, and you'll put your phone in your pocket because you can't walk, talk, and look at your phone, where, you know you really need to engage with people and actually you know get to the bottom of whatever you're, you're working on whether that's a, a people-based issue or whether it's a technical issue those those getting out of the office into the environment sessions they're they're much more productive so it seems like a bit of a cheat for me because i can come see for for a, for a fish but actually it's where we discuss business isn't it it's like yes. it's like a, it's almost like the golf club isn't it oh, that's very true i've never thought about yeah. that it's, our 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 relaxation is is being on the riverbank isn't yes it? So. yeah less less manicured more wild yeah it's fantastic but so the fishing thing is what is that that drew you to the water environment but you've also you're an outdoor kind of guy anyway yeah you? yeah so i think um it certainly, it certainly was uh, the motivation for rivers in particular within the environment. But I sort of just grew up in rural Wales and worked on farms from the age of nine, picking potatoes, and then getting into everything. So, um, you know, sort of serious agricultural veg growing, you know. So uh, I worked for the, at the time, he was the second biggest uh, cauliflower grower in the UK. Uh, worked in beef, dairy, poultry, a uh, bit of arable. Never worked with pigs, and I'm not upset about that. <laughs> okay. um, but but actually, you know, that kind of countryside upbringing was, was sort of, yeah, I just wanted to be outside. And then, yeah, fishing at an early age, and it was like, oh, I quite like this. And, and sort of the, the wildness of it and that sort of, I suppose it's the primeval instinct being uh, invoked. And, and then, yeah, it, it just kind of developed from there. But I strayed away from it for a while. A physics undergrad, uh, and and uh, I did a gap year where I worked outdoors on an estate in Scotland, um, and then every summer during that degree, I went and worked on the same in Scotland, and then for a year after that degree, I did the same. And at the end of it, the the very very uh, traditional Highland gamekeeper, uh, he called me an idiot. There might have been a few other right. colourful <laughs> words either oh, side of the word idiot, words, yeah. yeah. Um, and I asked him why, and he sort of said, why on earth have you done a degree in physics when you've spent every spare minute in the last five years here? 
he said, you should have done a, a degree in conservation or land management. And at that point, a light bulb went ping. And so uh, when, when I sort of finished up for the season, I went home looking at master's degrees and, and found the one at Bangor. And um, yeah, Dr. Water, I think that was the, you know, the, the sort of science of conservation and land management and, and actually looking at conservation through different lenses, actually understanding the difference between conserving and preserving which I think is um, often forgotten about. Triple S size SSEs tend to be about preserving rather than so conserving. Sites of special scientific interest. Yes. Yeah. And uh, special areas of conservation. So those are the highest designations we have. Yeah, there's a few others you can yeah. throw in there. Yeah. Special protection areas. I don't know what RAMSAR stands for, but that's another one. I think that's yeah. a bird-specific one. But... Um, it, that's not strictly true that they're preservation, but they're trying to maintain a very fixed habitat or habitat mosaic in time, or taken from a particular point in time. Whereas, you know, the conservation, if you go and look it up in the Oxford Dictionary, or certainly when I did when I was doing that Masters, it was the uh, sustainable use of. Mm-hmm. So it's okay, so how, how do we use uh, land and habitats in a sustainable way? And, and that sort of very much triggered into some of my sort of I almost switched from physics to economics and you know really quite enjoyed economics and and that that sort of uh, definition around conservation and preservation or the differences triggered a kind of interest in around what is now natural capital or back then was ecological economics Mm. Um, and it's that actually if we're going to sustainably within the context of a human society use an asset and maintain an asset it has to have some sort of value and there are different values but I think if you can assign some monetary value to an asset then it's going to be more likely that you maintain that and that it is conserved in its truest form providing all those things that we love and enjoy and you look at the habitats of old and that's why they're there they were there for a particular purpose for human society Um, so Exactly. I was on a farm yesterday and we were talking about putting in a new wood pasture scheme mm. on that farm and talking to the two young farmers there, very, it was fascinating, they're both brothers, and they were saying, when we mapped this ourselves, we went back to the old boundaries, which were there two, three hundred years ago, and we found all the old boundaries in the right place. Mm. They're the right place for shelter, mm-hmm. which is what we're now trying to rebuild in that farm system. So it's interesting you think about, well, actually someone who's gone that from a very practical sense they've built up a landscape and why have they built it up because of shade and shelter mm. and, and all that kind of things and, and we've ignored that for a few a long time actually and now they came back to it because of regenerative agriculture and actually they're saying no, the boundaries in the right place <laughs> and I found that fascinating really they weren't they didn't want to review that they thought well actually no, they're good uh, I, uh, there's a, almost a perversity in that we as humans have said technology will give us the answer and, and so let's clear all these things because we can find treatments and we can find technology that will solve all these problems but nature's out there going well I'm, I'm ready and waiting when you want to come back to me I'm here and, and actually yes uh, the best shelter that we can get. I mean, it, we talk about keeping rivers cool, you know, and that was one of our, our big programs with you. <coughs> and we talked about that a lot. Riv- keeping rivers cool. Keeping rivers cool. And so planting trees in riparian zones of streams as opposed to rivers to provide shade to prevent their temperature increasing. And, you know, a couple of years into that program, I would find myself taking a photograph of livestock using the shade more than the river. Because actually it's like, well, the direction of travel on climate change is that 
these these animals are going to come under increasing amounts of stress, whether that's from extremes of cold, extremes of wet, extremes of uh, heat, and trees, hedges, they do a lot to address some of those things in the livestock and, of course, climate change itself. So in the sense that you're valuing an yeah. asset... The asset you want to put in to keep your rivers cool is the same asset that a farmer might want for the health and well-being of his animals. Yeah. So he will value it for his animals. Your your dual value is that you're valuing that for the shade shelter of the river. Absolutely. And we get a, a win out of both of those aspects, too, which is fantastic. Yeah. And, and I think the challenge that we've had as a sector is actually recognising that there's that dual benefit. And I mean as a sector, as opposed to you and me chatting on the riverbank, and then trying to communicate that in a way with farmers that actually makes sense, mm. you know, and um, providing them with the evidence. So don't convince them, don't try and convince them to plant trees because it's the right thing for the river. They may be interested in the river, but they're going to be more interested in their own livestock. And so if you can provide that evidence that says, well, actually, you'll find that your sheep are gaining more weight or your beef cows are gaining more weight when they've got shade for those hot days. Mm. Then they start going, oh, really? There's so actually there's an economic advantage to me in having a bit of shade, and that it, and that's why in our team we've got three farm advisors. Uh, we're hoping to go up to four very soon, um, and they're all farmers' daughters, every single one. Right, and it's because they can talk farming to farmers in a way that farmers understand, and you know it it really helps, and they developed so many opportunities for woodlands we we struggle to keep up um but we're not just offering that we're also offering that whole farm holistic kind of like well we need to sort out your water management in your farmyard but while we're doing that let's see if we can get in fact there's a really good example where that's something a farmer wanted he wanted he needed hundreds of thousands to manage his rainwater uh, both as it's falling from the sky but also once it's landed on the yard and there was a little bit of, well, there are grants out there, but they're not really going to just fund that. You're going to have to go for something else to really make it more holistic. And we're doing one of the biggest floodplain reconnections we've ever done mm. off the back of it because it's he gets his win there and then he gets a win down here. And initially it was he just looked at that as a means to an end to, to get his what he really wanted. And then actually it's like, well, there's an income to be derived from doing that through agri-environment schemes. But also there's the advantage of, by doing that, you're going to see less erosion of your riverbanks and potentially less loss, of, well, not potentially, less loss of land uh, than he would otherwise experience. And, and you know, it was that kind of, and sometimes it's just getting that crowbar in and once you've got it in, you can prize it a bit more open and then actually they, they kind of really get it and they get really bought into it. So, yeah, but it, it's don't try and convince them about things that make, that motivate us you've got to find what motivates them um you've just outlined a few things that you might do on a farm um what so you're you you're you're a rivers trust mm-hmm. so what is what is it you're trying to do as a rivers trust are you trying to is it water quality water quantity um who do you work with just in a nutshell what's your what's your job what's your day job oh uh not my day job our organizational daily activities so uh rivers everyone wants to fix the river inside the river um but the problems that rivers experience don't originate in the river largely speaking they originate on the land or in our homes so we want to tackle the problems at source um and that means 
doing uh, land management uh, and land management change, land use change in some instances, but also engaging with the public, educating uh, the, the sort of future adults um, to really kind of address those problems at source. And one of those problems, um, so we, we kind of put it into the what we call the four pillars of catchment health, uh, water quality, water quantity, uh, habitat connectivity and habitat quality. So often it's quite a hard concept uh, for non-river enthusiasts to understand that we have hugely fragmented habitat in rivers because they see the water flowing from one direction into another and so it's connected. The water is of course connected but that the habitat is it can easily be disconnected by weirs and, uh, and dams and reservoirs and I think that we've been working as a sector to kind of get o- uh, try and get over that that misconception, and so everyone's thinking about upstream migration, or they understand that concept. You know, saw the wild isles the other week, and of course they had the salmon leaping up river. Yep. But you also have the problem about downstream migration. So the juvenile salmon, as they're migrating downstream, they really don't like weirs, and they they can sense from the change in velocity as they're approaching it, and they'll swim away from it. And then you kind of get these bottlenecks where they're exposed to human predators, avian predators, mammal predators, but also pollution. You know, if you bottleneck them in a location and then you get a bad low oxygen or... Yeah, yeah. and and that's a quite common occurrence upstream of a weir is low oxygen because you've got all of these horrible things that are deposited Mm. on the riverbed upstream of a weir because it slowed the flow and it deoxygenates. So weirs are bad, you know, and, and... Fish passes as the the kind of constructed solution are a solution, but not the solution. Getting rid of weirs is the solution, uh, and so a fish pass should be the last thing that that you do. So I, I ta- just voted yesterday on on the what's it the dam removal dam Awards. removal Europe yeah Europe. yeah yeah I just voted for our, our I say a local one it's in South Cumbria yeah so sorry it was South Cumbria so that's not yours but no 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 it's um, I know from from uh, the colleagues at South Cumbria that that was a particularly challenging I know Pete very well yeah and, and I think it was extremely stressful and the delight on his face when you see the film of them having destroyed it and then seeing that new habitat emerge yeah is fantastic isn't it. Uh, it absolutely is, and we've done uh, a couple of projects, and we haven't. We've done some really big weir removals. We're, we had for a while we had the widest in the UK. Uh, that was in 2020, which not uh, that it's one upmanship. No, no, not that there's any competition. <laughs> which, of course, Johnny Gray, uh, Professor Johnny Gray, managed to, to smash. I think it was last year by I doing something it, on the yeah. River Ure. Um I think Ollie has got the tallest. Uh, somewhere in, in Cumbria, Ollie Southgate from yeah, the yeah, EA. Yeah. So um, uh, yeah, there's always a bit of friendly competition, uh, and and so yeah, the um, the the sort of removal of weirs. But we we we've done some really big ones, but we've tended to monitor and actually do a bit of monitoring, uh, detail monitoring around some of the small ones. And it's really interesting that even removing the small one make massive improvements within 12 months. In fact, I suspect it's even sooner than that. We did one on Swanside. Uh, where I think we've done a project together planting yeah. some riparian trees. And, and it was it was actually a weir that anglers had put in to create a deep pool to hold big fish. Of course, that works for a couple of years and then the pool fills in with gravel and it's no longer worth fishing. So we removed the weir, and uh, but we did monitoring on invertebrates, uh, intervals, uh, sorry, um, distance intervals downstream and upstream before uh, in spring and autumn. And then we repeated that after removal... Um, in the same year 
and then again the, the year after. And there was massive improvements in abundance and diversity. And the really interesting thing was within the diversity is those really kind of fast-flowing, well-oxygenated, sediment-moving rivers. Uh, and th- those are the things that we should be seeing. So, you know, it's a hugely beneficial. And that's the, the thing is that, you know, I separate habitat connectivity from quality, but actually removing weirs does both. Right. So it increases the speed, the complexity within the, within the river, so more yep. oxygenation, more higgledy-piggledy, more riffles and yep. pools and things like that. As, as so that helps to oxygenate, but it also helps to move through yep. some of the well, it, it's, pollution. It, and, and essentially, uh, weirs create homogenous habitat, so very samey, uh, not diverse habitat at all. Rivers are diverse. And really interesting, it's a bit like business uh, mentality, is that if you've got uh, heterogeneous or diverse habitat, you're more resilient. You've got more habitat niches being created. If one gets damaged or lost, something can move into it because you've got a similar habitat in a different location somewhere else. So that that, that diversity is absolutely key, and, and weir removal gives you that. The other thing, and that's where our work has, has come in around habitat quality, is trees. And my favourite, uh, it wasn't me, I think it was Staffordshire Wildlife Trust who, who did a, a nice project around woody material in rivers and they've got a great photo of a salmon tucked up in some roots and branches and underneath it's uh, fish living trees yeah. too. And that, that yeah. that's a regular sort of a meme, I think they're called, uh, that, that I use. And in fact, yesterday I was um, at Preston on a project with the EA and we we're inserting some uh, root plates into the riverbank mm-hmm. And uh, it, it's taken about six months to get the project in place. And the contractors, who are just contractors, they're civil engineers, they're kind of like... And they didn't what's say anything, but you, yeah, you could <laughs> yeah. see on their yeah. face, what's this about? And so in the end... We'll take the money, but we're not really sure what's, what we're doing. Yeah. Really, yeah. Well, I, I've got a friend who is uh, a, a diver, an underwater photographer, and uh, so I look, looked him up, and, and uh, I was like, I'm sure I've seen a really good one. And, oh, there it is. And I showed them a picture, and it's tree roots and branches in a bit of a tangle, and in it are about five sea trout tucked up really yeah. close. yeah. And it's a very small pool that he took that that photo in, and it's like that's what we're trying to do. And then ah, and so that habitat quality is around having the shade, um, but it's also about then having the branches and the roots and trailing vegetation that that goes with it. So on a daily basis, we're developing out projects around habitat quality, and they get delivered at different times of year. So uh, we're still tree planting. I know it's a bit late, but it's a bit late, we're, yeah. we're, 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 we're finishing soon. We're You're finishing it's cold soon. And rainy again, I know, and we've put our trees into cold storage okay. to, to just give us a couple more weeks. Um, and uh, so we've got tree planting uh, in the winter, and then we'll go into invasive control, which is also about ensuring good habitat quality. So we don't have these fields of balsam or so Himalayan balsam. That's that that <coughs> three foot high, four foot high pink flowers. The if it, I've, they can go eight feet. Well, okay. <laughs> they, 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 yes, I think for most people they'll come across them probably in that three four feet uh, sort of so category. So that lines some of the riverbanks, particularly around urban areas. Um, Oh, even here in the Ribble, um, not far from here, uh, there's a woodland that uh, it's open to livestock, so there's not a m- much other vegetation to out or to compete with the balsam, and it's just a sea balsam. of, of balsam uh, in the summer. And that that what they do on riverbanks is they out compete other vegetation. You get bare banks, which 
ultimately mean we haven't got these roots and, and complex things or we haven't got long trailing grass and macrophytes, uh, water-based plants. Um, but then in the winter when they die off, you've got these sort of bare soil banks that erode really easily and you're increasing the sediment load in the river, which clogs up the gravel and, and causes problems. So it's interesting. I mean, I've, I've spoken to bee, beekeepers uh, recently uh, because we have we've so modified our landscape to remove flowers you know, from our meadows. Our meadows and our rye grasses, rye mm. grass silage fields mm. very often. Actually, the, the, the balsam is, is, is viewed as a positive for, from beekeepers because there's actually quite a lot of pollen in them. So it's interesting how we... All of these things are slightly nuanced, aren't they? They are, and, and that, that's an interesting one because I remember a friend who works for a river shost was a beekeeper and he moved house, so he went to a local beekeepers association meeting and he, he asked for any tips uh, of one of the guy, from one of the, the other attendees and the, the other attendee looked over both shoulders, put his hand in his pocket and handed him a little envelope and when Ben got home and opened it, it was him laying balsam seeds. You know, we won't talk about the, the breach in the uh, the Countryside and Wildlife Act, but um, really interesting, we've spoken to some beekeepers who've actually taken the view that there can be a problem with balsam, can be, not not everywhere, uh, from a beekeeper's uh, point of view, which is feast and famine. Yeah. So that it doesn't have that extended period of pollen creation that a natural environment. So, yeah, they're producing vast quantities of, of honey in a very short period, but then they've got these big gaps. And it's the same with oil to grape as well, those sort of crops as well. We've, and this is the modification of the landscape. Mm. I'm, into, I'm into habitat restoration. I think that's, that's my mojo. That's where I'm at, restoring habitats. But the complexity of that restoration process means you have all of these different facets, don't you? So it's the timing of events. It's, it's, keep, it's maintaining flow in that. So you've got lots of different timed events. You've yep. got lots yep. of complexity. And so what you're dealing with in the river is the same as what we're trying to deal with on land. And the reality is that the river responds to what you're doing on land. Yeah. So, again, the problem doesn't start in the river, it starts on the land. So our focus is largely land. And yes, there are things within the river from the habitat connectivity and on the river banks. But the, the problems around diffuse pollution and water quality uh, and water quantity are all around um, how the land is used. So... Kind of uh, sorry, just finishing. So that that's the the, invas- the tree planting. Then we're into invasives and litter picks. Then we kind of go into the big capital works. So it might be weir removals. Uh, so we've got some starting in a couple of weeks, or fish pass construction, uh, and then you kind of back into tree planting and peat restoration. So we do peat restoration because uh, that has big water quality and water quantity water quantity benefits. Um, But alongside all of that, we've got farm advisors working with the farmers. And what we're looking for is the habitat mosaic. Mm. And and I think, you know, uh, the amount of tree planting we've done with you and, and, you know, subsequently with others, there's uh, uh, sometimes it's like, are you really Ribble Rivers Trust or are you Ribble Woodland Trust? And it's like, no, that's not really fair. It's that they see the the sort of tree planting in the woodland because it it grabs the attention. but that is just one part of what we do. And, you know, one of the key things is that if farmers think all we want to do is turn up and plant trees all over their farm, they're going to shut us uh, shut us out pretty quickly. So it, it is about having a habitat mosaic, which includes food production. Um, now, around here, we don't tend to have that much arable. The, 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 the sort of soil type topography, rainfall isn't ideal. There is some maize, and the more you go uh, towards Preston and out then towards the uh, further west, uh, towards the coast, yes, you know, you start to see some arable. But largely, it's grassland-based uh, systems. 
But it's working with farmers to then kind of say, well, look, yeah, these are good fields. These are going to be your perennial rye. We're not going to try and persuade you to change the whole field. We might ask for a little corner over here. We might suggest putting a, a, a hedgerow in to provide some shelter or, you know, those little things. But that's your perennial rye field. What we would like you to do is check your nutrient levels in the soil, make sure you're not wasting money. You know, we, we regularly come across that where they're throwing 2010-10 fertiliser. Um, I can't remember... It's MPK, MPK, but I can't remember which is which. Um, that's, the, that's the little white bubbles you bubbles, buy in that's these it. big bags yep. that uh, translates, moves up, big, big transport into the farmyard, and you see them sat there. And, and then they go into the back of the spreader, yep. and then you go and throw them all over the field, which, yes, I can remember doing many a time. And, you know, no one back when I was doing that was talking about soil testing. But now, you know, we, we I think farmers are much more conscious of it now, particularly because of the high price of fertiliser. But we, we do still see farmers throwing 2010-10 on, as well as slurry, and the actual uh, nutrient indices in the soil are exceeding what they need. Now, slurry is a complex issue because that is a byproduct. Yes, it's a valuable one because it's full of nutrients, but they've got limited storage. So you can understand, maybe not agree with, but you can understand why they would spread that to the land even if the nutrient indices didn't but need often it. Often a broad time of year, because obviously a wet product, it's got lots of water in it. We've got more water in the winter than we have in the summer, so, so it tends yeah. to want to be spread in the winter. And But putting 2010-10 on when your nutrient indices, you're throwing money in the river, quite literally. Yeah. And and um, uh, really interesting, Sarah Bolton, who was one of our old farm advisors, she learned quite a neat trick, which is don't talk to the farmer about wasting money on fertiliser, talk to his wife. <laughs> and you'll soon see that the, uh, the fertiliser is not being added if it's not needed. Um, so, so that's an important part around you know food production is that doing it sustainably for the environment, but also for the farm business. And those two things are the same. Uh, often not thought so, but it is true. They are the same. I, I, and this is where I, I might think your 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 history of having worked on farms. You're growing vegetables, having having had a farmer perspective before you then go back into conservation later on. To my mind, that's where we all need to be. Yes, is, is is actually a conservation that goes through 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 school as a conservationist come out as a going to university as a conservationist come out the other end as a conservationist going get a conservation job is probably the worst kind of conservationist. We need people who have empathy for others, and and understanding. I think that the big thing we miss collectively is that if you if a farmer is a farmer they own land as an asset that asset has to work for them yep they have to make their living off that land yep now we might not like what they do or how they do it but we want them to make a living mm. so it's it's how do we how do we moderate the, the the negatives of some of that and facilitate sustainable farming from an economic social and and, and ecological perspective that's quite difficult oh it, it, it's hugely difficult and I think what you're touching on there is my kind of concern around the loss of understanding between conservation and preservation mm. is that a farmer is conserving his land by growing perennial ryegrass. He is sustainably, well, if he's following all the, the best uh, practice, he is sustainably using his asset. Now, it, that's not maybe what we or, or some people want, but it is conservation in, in some ways, whereas a lot of what I would I fear of uh, uh, are coming through the ranks as conservationists are really preservationists. They want to restore, and that's a dangerous word in conservation. I, re I remember a conference back in 2013, restore to what? 
immediately post glaciers when we didn't have any vegetation you know are we so when we when we talk about restoring we should be very specific restore to what point and most of what i i fear is coming through is restoration of uh 1920s maybe even turn of the century farmland mm. that's just not realistic we might get a little patches of that but actually in terms of our population our society it's not realistic and and so what is realistic i don't know but i do know that you've got to be a farmer or have experienced farming or be able to empathize with farmers to actually get any view on what's realistic in terms of conservation and balancing biodiversity environment and food production Before we get too far down that particular spiral, I think I've, I've really enjoyed meeting and knowing you because actually you've taught me so much. And just going back to the river and trees, all that kind of stuff, I think one of the things that we, we talked about quite early on, you've done some research on invertebrate numbers yep. resulting from, from riparian planting, yep. so tree planting on the edge of the river, um, and how upstream was poor, midstream alongside the trees was, was good, and downstream was better as well. Just is things like the gems like that that I've, we've had. It seems pretty simple and obvious, but you've done so much research on that kind of stuff, haven't you? Yeah, and you know, I mean it's very hard to resource. That's one of the biggest challenges is is funding that kind of monitoring and that research. And and yes, there are academic institutions, but their needs around research differ from the practical delivery bodies, uh, such as having three years in advance of doing anything, which. For baseline surveys, everything else, yeah, doesn't happen. So, so yeah, we we essentially um, tasked a, a master student with coming up with a way to assess. I think it was eleven different schemes that we'd done, including I think at least seven that we had done yeah. with yourself, Pete. Yeah. And um, and and uh, she came up with this really neat way of saying, well, I've got enough different sites where I can do paired kick samples upstream of where you've done planting and fencing paired within and paired downstream and although I haven't got a before I have got a kind of control a proxy for that which yes. is the upstream yeah exactly yeah. and then I've kind of got the controls and I've got the the, the in- intervention and I've got multiples so that you know I can compare across and I think in those 11 nine of them all showed a significant increase in both abundance and diversity within a year in the sections fenced off and tree planted but the thing that really excited me was that there seemed to be a drift effect that downstream also showed an improvement on the upstream. So what we had done in that area, so often uh, there was this kind of view of, oh, kilometres enhanced. This is you know, uh, one of the measures for, we can only count the bit that we fenced off. Well, no, we can count far more because we're actually demonstrating. And, and that pattern was across nine of the 11 in the first study. And the two that it wasn't, septic tank issues right so now what we can't show is why that happened we can't say that it uh, was sediment or lack of vegetation but there is a very strong correlation and evidence base to say yes the intervention of fencing and tree planting has resulted in that benefit we repeated that three years later um through actually it was a volunteer who off his own back, put himself through loads of training through the FBA and others in invertebrate sampling. He, Steve Johnson, I will absolutely name drop Steve, he's fantastic. He now helps out with our education programmes. And he repeated it um, using some of those sites, but also some other sites, and the pattern was the same. 
is wherever we'd done uh, fencing and tree planting, we saw that improvement in diversity and abundance. But the interesting thing is it was 15 out of 15 for him. There was no sort of uh, uh, two exceptions. But it, it, having that information is really good when you're trying to talk to government ministers or when you're trying to convince funders or, or the general public is that, no, we're having an impact. The really exciting thing is, just to reiterate, we found this happening within a year. Yeah. It can be that quick because often, you know, we've joked around, we haven't created a woodland, we've created an area with stakes and tubes or, yeah, you sticks know, in the field. sticks in the field, yeah. that's it. And and actually, even though we that's how we often feel, we are already having a benefit. Yeah. Um, but the, the the exciting thing, and hopefully we can go and see some in a, in a bit, is some of those schemes really now starting to look like woodlands. Mm-hmm. And, you know, not, not just sticks in the field or... Sort of little shrubs peeking out the top of uh, tubes, but actually turning into uh, woodlands, and that's that's quite exciting. Um, I do want to go outside. It, it's drying up a bit, so I think we can probably step outside. Um, but just while we're here, a couple of things. You've been here a long time. I've been here a long time. We've seen some changes. I mean, our our, our tenure. I mean, yours is fifteen years here or something, isn't it? Our tenures are are, are small in terms of nature but they're, they're they're big in terms of people mm. do you see i hope you're going to be here in another 15 years time but do you you're starting to add and an amalgamate schemes where you might have worked on something a long time ago you're seeing now that flow of those sites meeting the people do you feel as though you're getting are you are you getting anywhere with your work because it it seems like a huge task to try and turn a catchment like the ribble a massive river mm. with all of the issues do you feel as though that, that that short period of time is making a difference and, and that you can, with your next 15 years, make a difference? I am optimistic that we will see in the next 15 years a measurable, at the main river scale, improvement. Um, it's not going to be some of the improvements that, that some people want, uh, such as, I can't definitely say there will be more salmon, there are... There are so many issues affecting salmon but i think you know is a base basic measures of water quality vertebrate numbers and habitat it will be measurably better i think the tide is just on the ebb i um and what i'm basing that on is we're not seeing massive uptake of we want to do this 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 and this and and we're inundated but as an example farmers are now paying our farm advisors for advice you know, and to undertake work for them. You know, 15 years ago, I'd have laughed at me now. Never. You're never going to pull that off where the farmers trust you that much that they're actually going to give you their own hard-earned cash to do things for them. And they are. And that's the the best sign in terms of that land management change. Um, And and there are other indicators, there are other factors. So I I think, yeah, it's just on the ebb. And I think, you know, we will see see a huge uh, change over the next 15 years. And if you were going to have Rishi Sunak here today, or whatever Prime Minister we have, what two take-homes would you give them? Oh, that is such a big question. Um, It's a bit of a nasty one at the end of an interview. Yeah, it it is. Oh, my word. I have to think about that. Um... Maybe you can think about that while we go outside and have a look at it, have a look, have a look at the site. For real. For real. Because the pub's lovely, actually, yeah. but, and it's, it's great coffee, but... Um, Nothing nice beats to, fresher. Yeah, nice to get out of the mud, wouldn't it? Absolutely.
I think the first thing is you can hear and see running water. You know, yep. Joking aside, you know, with the impacts of climate change, we're seeing streams of this size, which is about four metres wide, uh, running dry. Um, yep. Also, we've had a lot of rainfall in the last 48 hours, and it doesn't look like it's about to flood. So, actually, you know, the quantity of water in the river is, is pretty neat. The water is clear. Yep. Now, everyone assumes clear, clear water is clean water. That's unfortunately not true. Um, however, you can see that we've got moss on stones. Uh, we'll do some stone turning in a bit, yep. and you'll see that it's full of invertebrates. So, with those two combined, we've got a pretty clean river. It's also clear after two days of rain, which yep. is a, another good sign that the soil, the habitat, everything upstream of here is in pretty good order. And, and this is this is pretty much it's it's a grazed landscape. Yes, yeah. So, um, so it's got we've got sheep grazing either side and big big pastures with big old trees. This yeah. feels pretty. If I said not natural, but it feels like a pretty historic landscape. Oh, it is. It is. Where you know this part of the world uh, has been managed in a relatively sensitive, if not sensitive, way uh, for hundreds of years, and. You know, you can see they have areas of wood pasture. Yep. They have areas of just pure woodland. They have restored hedges. There's some remnant hedges that need a bit of attention, but you know, overall, they've not tried to strip it clear. When we're looking at the vegetation under our feet, it's not perennial ryegrass. No. There might be odd bits, um, but it's actually a more diverse sword than an improved grassland. Even if you don't quite know what you're looking at, you can see different shapes of blade of grass, you can see different heights, different colours. There's some celandine, some light, nice yellow flowers, it's this sort of springtime of year. And actually, the other side of the fence, we've got dog's mercury, we've got wild garlic, we've got fantastic, fantastic primroses down there. It, it looks like a landscape that still has plenty of its older attributes with it. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, there's wild garlic where we're not being grazed. And, and actually, uh, further upstream, uh, we, we might get to have a, uh, a look at where we fenced off. We've seen the bluebells return. Okay. Um, and it, and it, so it's a sea of blue, or getting to be a sea of blue since we, we fenced off. Um, the other thing, going back to the river, is that it's tree-lined. Yep. But not in its entirety. So actually, where we are, we're on the westward side of the, the stream. And quite happily, most of the trees, certainly in this, this uh, reach, are on the westward side which is good because as the sun's passing over, as it's reaching its, its pinnacle, it's giving a shade. So, hang on, I'm just checking that. I've got my yeah, north side. Have, you have, yeah, yeah, yeah. Correct, but essentially it's on the side of the bank that's providing shade, but it's got little areas where there are no trees. So mm -hmm. we're getting a bit of direct sunlight as well. And on the other bank, it's not all treed. Um, but when we're looking at the trees as well, you can see over there, it looks like an alder. Uh, young alder, maybe a couple of meters high, that's sprouting out yeah. of the bank. Um, but then, right in front of us here is this big old sycamore and a, a, a quite a mature hazel next to us as well. And they're dripping with mosses and lichens. Yeah, and look uh, at those lichens. It's fantastic. Um, which are obviously signs of clean air, yep. which is fantastic. So we've got a diversity of age of trees. So as this sycamore dies and collapses into the river, we actually have more trees coming up behind it, around it, that will take its place. So often there's a fear of, uh, from farmers that when a tree goes down, it, it'll leave a hole that the river will erode into. Well, it won't erode into it if there's a tree following on, yeah. you know, and the whole bank is bound together nicely. And all these leaves <coughs> will enter the, enter the water column. They'll rot down slowly, some of them faster than others. 
So the different, different species here will help to the, have a drive the invertebrates in the river. Oh, absolutely. So if you come here, and uh, as I have done in the past, and you kick sample in the autumn and there are leaves in, it's gamorous soup. And gamorous are a freshwater shrimp, yep. and they're detritus feeders. Uh, they love, uh, they absolutely so love. So they'll break down things like leaf litter. Yeah, absolutely. They, they love leaf litter, and really important food source for juvenile fish. In fact, for all fish. Uh, love quite uh, quite sort of um, alkaline water, which this is coming off limestone where we are. Um, but the other thing, going back to our trees, and um, forgive me, I, I think I'm more tree obsessed <laughs> than you, Pete, uh, is that we, we can see where there's old trees that have fallen in the river and they've been left. Yeah. And that's actually add, adding to that habitat diversity that we were talking about previously, where you know, the fish can get into the roots and into the branches and take cover, but it also changes the shape of the river. Uh, and that's really important. But the other thing that it does, it slows it down. So the water is passing underneath, so it's not like a, a, a artificial, a human constructed weir. Uh, it, it's allowing water to, to pass underneath, but when it gets to a certain height, it's slowing the water down, and that's reducing the flood risk downstream. Right. But also, it's releasing that water more slowly, so you kind of get this extended flood peak. Because one of the other things that we're starting to see, I would say strong evidence for, is that it, the flood peaks are really impacting our fish numbers. And, and anglers will tell you, of course, it washes all the reds out. But actually, our evidence is saying it's not washing the reds, and the reds are the fish's uh, nests where they lay their eggs in the gravel. They're actually washing out the baby fish just as they emerge from the gravel in sort of early March through to, to early April. So they're not strong swimmers. They're they not exactly. And a big flood comes and it washes them away. It puts them on banks. It, it you know it causes no end of, of harm. And we've got 15 years of data that sort of backing that up now, sort of saying actually that crucial period is March and April. And there's a bit of a debate around the the peak flows and whether they're always in that period or not but what we do know is that with the wetter warmer winters the eggs which hatch after a so many degree days so if i think for trout it's uh, 440 degree days so it's 110 days at four degrees i, I may have got my uh, yeah. my old <laughs> fishery science wrong there but if we have a warm winter they hatch earlier so they're emerging too soon right and so what we, we think is going on is they're coming out of the gravel too soon, we're getting these massive flood peaks and it's washing them away. But if we've got trees in the river that are slowing it down, that are reducing the height of those flood peaks, we're looking after those fish, as well as the people downstream having uh, less flood risk. So this is fascinating. And again, we talked earlier about, <coughs> about objectives and aims and those things where one thing, you might have the same outcome, but viewed differently by different people. Natural flood management, is, is about protecting homes and houses from flooding, but it also helps your fish stocks. Yep. So this is this is where we start to layer these things and get real, real benefits for everybody yep. out of these activities. And, and that multiple benefit approach is absolutely crucial because it goes back to that conservation principle, which is if we can find benefits for everyone, the farmers, the people downstream, the fish, the anglers, you know, everybody, we're more likely to conserve, to continue to use the landscape in that way so that we're preserving the benefits that are coming out of it. So just one more thing about the river, before we actually go and get into it, because I'm really desperate to go and see what's under some of these big stones. Um, the, there's pools on this and there's riffles on this. That, it looks very natural here. So I think you once told me there's a kind of, is it one to seven? It is. So um, the... 
there's, it's a, a very strange magic number. So some people say, oh, it's five to nine. Well, seven's in the middle. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, seven times the channel width is how often you should see a full pool and riffle sequence. And if so you, this is four metres wide. We'd expect to see a, a pool and riffle sequence every 28 metres. And, and if you're seeing that, you know that you've got relatively um, natural riparian zones and habitat. You've got good supply of sediment. And you probably haven't got someone building a weir or dredging or changing the route of the river anywhere in the vicinity. And it's a, a brilliant test because, you know, you figure out your stride length and yep. you do your, your, your number of steps from the top of the riffle to the bottom of the pool and you've got an immediate test of how healthy the river is. And because is. we've modified, even these upland situations, I'd say this is almost upland, isn't it? It's very close. Uh, we've modified these rivers. We've drained, dredged, we've, we've changed how they work. And, and very often we don't have any of those pools where the fish can lie up or the riffles. Yeah, and, and in, in some of the places where we first worked right up in the, the true upstream headwaters of the Ribble, uh, up in the, the, the Orchard Ales, is that the absence of trees combined with the modifications to the channel has meant that the river's eroded its channel width extra wide. And that means that the water is particularly shallow. So we don't get pools and riffles. We kind of get glides, um, if you get a glide. And, and this, this thing that appears to be a riffle, because it's kind of water cascading, not even cascading, but flowing over stones. But it's so shallow that you'll get water temperatures in May around 20 degrees Celsius. Now, yeah. you don't want water temperatures of 20 degrees Celsius full stop. Yeah. And to get them in May is pretty scary. Um, and that, that absence of trees, which is largely down to human activity as well, plus the modification of the river has led to that. Let's go and stand in this river and see what we can find. Definitely. So rather joyfully, because I'm a boy in shorts and I have actually got shorts on today, although wellies as well. We have now got in the river and I think Jack's gonna talk through what he sees. Yeah, so I'm just looking around. I wanna do some stone turning to see what invertebrates are hiding under the stones. One of the most important things when you're doing this is to make sure that you're targeting an area that's almost always wet. So if we were over there, uh, closer to the riverbank in this location where it's very shallow in a, in a week's time it'll probably be dry so I've come sort of a bit more towards the middle and uh, essentially looking for a stone that I can lift that doesn't look like it's been recently disturbed and uh, see what we can see underneath and I can immediately see on that stone there's lots of little little tiny little bits of sand or grit that being pulled together to make little houses. Yeah, and I'm gonna show my absolute ignorance. I can't remember what they are, but you're right. The inside there uh, is a maturing invertebrate. Um, it might be, I won't say older fly, but any uh, freshwater invertebrate specialist will probably laugh at Okay, but it could be things like case caddis, perhaps. Yes, yeah, yep. yeah. Um, let's try this really big one. Oh, so things moving around here. So we've got a little heptogenidae there. Um, now, heptogenidae are in the family mayfly, mm -hmm. um, flat-bodied, um, or in schools. They're often referred to as Darth Vader, okay. because of the, the shape of their head resembles the, okay, the Darth Vader's helmet. 
um, and they're a good sign. They're, they have a body shape that is designed to keep them flat to the stone because they like fast flowing water and they're, they're muscular almost in their yeah. upper arms which they use to cling on facing upstream into that fast flowing water. And is there a sign of, of, of good water quality if, if those things are here? Yes, absolutely. So I, from memory in one of the indices they score sort of 10 out of 10. Okay. They're, they're a really good sign. So I've just picked up another stone here and we have a, a little caseless caddis here. So um, when that matures into a winged adult that will be a sedge. In fact, that is an egg mass. That uh, funny little discoloration there. Okay. I can't tell you what it is. Yep, yep. But, um, uh, an adult uh, freshwater insect has landed on this stone, crawled under the water and laid its eggs there. Okay. This guy's probably on his way to eat it. It's uh, <laughs> From the looks of it, it's a hydropsyche, but yep. um, yeah. A little bit of moss in there yep. and a bit more there. A bit, oh yeah, look, all over that stone. Let's pop that one back. That's, that's an important one to put back, yep. yeah. Look after future, it's a, this one. Oh, it's a bit heavier, a bit that's bigger. That's a bit of a beast. Oh, there we go. There's the size hectogenidae that I wanted to show you. Look. That. That's oh not, yes, not yeah, quite yeah. an inch long, yeah. but getting on for oh, it. Oh, and it's a very, very long tail. Yeah, three, three tails. Three tails. Okay. Which help to identify the mayfly family. Yeah. They're running, running away to hide. What I'm really looking for. Oh, there's oh, another oh, one. Oh, there's another one. A little yeah. bit smaller that okay. one. Okay. And there are many species within that family. Um, so, which I'm not that good to be able to tell you all the different ones. What I'm really looking for is what this particular stream is famous for, is its large stonefly. Okay. Which, from memory, a pearl a day. And every time I brought a visitor here, we've always found them. But because you have recording equipment, I can guarantee... That we won't. We won't. But we've already, I mean, just even those few stones, oh my word. Yeah, even more of those big hats. It's just amazing what's stuck onto these rocks if you turn them over. Um, and obviously we don't want everybody everywhere doing this because this is disturbance, but it, it is a really good reveal of the quality of a habitat, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. So you look at the number of different types of invertebrate, you look at the abundance, and that really gives you an indication. And we've turned three or four stones there. We've seen high-scoring uh, indicator species in good numbers, which is a really great sign. And if you're doing a proper assessment, you have a proper sampling net and you do uh, kick samples for a timed amount and then you take up your sample away and you count them and you do all that, that more, much more in-depth stuff. But just turning a few stones just to see what's there can give you a real indication. But I think also it reveals there is a whole world under this water yes. surface. Yeah, yeah. You know, often people look and they see the landscape and they don't realise under this water surface is a a landscape in its own right. It's um, it's very special. It's also worth being trying to be aware whether the stream you're visiting is home to any protected species. So white clawed crayfish, um, because they are protected, you have to have a license to handle them. They're, they're very rare and very vulnerable. So, you know, it is worth checking, but if you're sensitive, you work in the shallows, turn a, turn a stone, you can, you can get an idea of what's in there. And whatever you do, don't take the crayfish out. Yeah. Uh, even if you think it's an invasive, unless you know, don't take it out. Because there's always a risk that you get it wrong. So, 
the, before we go, and it's been a fantastic morning talking to you, and thank you very much for bringing us to one of your favourite little becks in good condition. It's lovely to see it. That 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 ask of Rishi, what what is it? I've got to try and put it in words. Do not think that the private sector and private money will get us out of this problem. The drive for private finance we need to do, but we cannot become reliant on it. They are not going to be the answer to the problem that we face. They're going to be a part of it. We need to keep public funding going. We need to keep all efforts and all funding going, not looking to investment and creating debt around the environment. And a hopeful thing, for me a hopeful thing, is that I've known you and lots of people like you for the last, well, up to 30 years now. It feels to me like we have a generation of people who have learnt lots, who are sharing, who are working together. And you're one of the, for me, you're one of the most impressive people because you have worked with so many others and brought so many people along. So for me, I think there's a little bit of hope there that actually people are trying harder and doing better now than they used to. Definitely, yeah. definitely. Thanks for your time, Jack. Thanks, it's been Pete. fantastic. Let's get out of this river. You can tell that we had quite a lot of fun just getting in the river, turning over stones, talking about what was underneath those stones. I love Jack's approach and uh, he's a firm friend and, you know, it, it's great to see him in his environment just doing the stuff he loves. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Next week, we're going to meet Lee Schofield up at Horsewater um, and you might like to prepare by buying a copy of Lee's book, Wildfell, well worth a read. You've been listening to the Tree Amble podcast, written and produced by myself, Pete Leeson. My special thanks go to Pete Ord for his awesome production and mixing skills. And actually, Pete and Pete, both of us, we wrote the music, so thanks very much to Pete for his input there. The recording was on location with mixing and production at the studio at Sunbeams, part of the Annie Mawson Sunbeams Music Trust. Thanks also to all those lovely people who were interviewed, Simon Wakefield for the artwork, and my special thanks go to those who gave me the confidence and support to make this happen. Angela, Anne, Catherine, Tim, Tim, Kevin, Emma, Nick and Paul. Thank you. <laughs>